Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Since then, I have been on a journey full of challenges, which has led me to ask the question, how do we face up to the challenges in our lives? To help me answer this question, each week I learn from different guests how they faced up to the challenges in their own lives, and perhaps even how they led to opportunities. I hope that by listening, you will be better able to face up to the challenges in your lives so you can live your best life today. And just a note before we start this week's episode, the connection and sound quality wasn't quite as good as we would have liked. However, I hope that you'll agree with me that what Samuel has to say far outstrips any difficulties with the audio. I really hope that you enjoy this episode of Facing Up. Today I have Samuel Asare Trumasi and Porfo with me and we've been fighting a connection between the UK and Ghana and I think we got it nailed today. So I'm super excited to be chatting with Samuel. I first met Samuel at Oxford and Samuel gave this talk at the front of the class that everyone found very powerful and impactful apart from myself because I was um, <laughs> lost in my own world of thinking who who on earth can have all these different problems like don't you realize like I'm the one with the problems in this room and you know I'm, I'm the one who's been on a tough journey it was only probably about six months later we're in Spain going on a field trip down the Ebro River and I got talking to Samuel about his backstory and how coming to Oxford has been a journey against so many odds at so many different points and I realized I've been really quite mistaken to so offhandedly not acknowledge Samuel's journey and what he'd been doing and I'm now really excited today to hear in some detail how Samuel you've been able to what your challenges have been what your journey's been and how at each stage you've managed to take them on with what appears to be a really amazing mindset. Samuel, welcome to the Facing Up podcast and thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Luke. Thank you so much for for having me. It's a a great privilege. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. To be honest, I'm the one who, I I also feel privileged. Um, (laughs) So that's a good start. Um, (laughs) We both want to be here. Can you give us a bit of a feel for you know, where you grew up, what the, what the situation w- was like, what your hopes were when you were growing up? Yeah. Oh, okay, so I, I grew up in a small deprived village in, in southern Ghana um, in the early 90s. Um, and when, when I talk about deprived, uh, I mean deprived, you know. Um, this is a, a village where there was no light, no potable water. Um, you don't have basic social amenities, it's nothing like hospitals. You bring from the stream, you share the stream with animals. Um, there isn't really anything proper to talk, to talk about. And everyone in the, you know, in the village is sort of a subsistence farmer. Um, and that seems to be the destiny of, of everyone. So you are growing up and you know that this is what you are growing up to become because there's really nothing to... I mean, there's really nothing beyond 
such a life. And uh, apart from the, the 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 depravity of the of the community, um, I was also born into a family which was, I mean, laden with serious financial constraints. And maybe I should take time to go a bit deeper into that. I mean, this is a family that we couldn't afford common salt or sugar uh, or kerosene because those days we used to use lanterns and you, you, you have to, you know, fuel it with kerosene. And we couldn't afford some of those, you know, just basic things. And, you know, um, a family where if you are privileged, you would just have one shirt. And I remember... I had one shirt and that's what I use for almost everything. You know, I'll go to the farm with it. If I had to, I'll go to the church with it. And sometimes, you know, you know, wash it during Christmas. And that's what you use for Christmas. We used to go to, from house to house, you know, as kids, just trying to, you know, celebrate the Christmas with other people and collect, you know, toffees, candies and stuff from, you know, from house to house. And, and that's the one shirt, you know, you, you, we had. I had, and that's what I used actually. Um, so um, that was my situation. And though I was fortunate to even be in school, I had to walk to school barefooted. Um, um, those days, if, if if you are going to school, um, your parents must must be the ones that, that that were supposed to buy tables and chairs for you. And so tables and chairs were used by the the most privileged people. The tables and chairs that the school themselves don't provide them. I mean, those were I mean, almost everything there was was deprived. I should say because the schools themselves um, couldn't couldn't really provide them, and um, you know, um, maybe maybe it might be something common throughout sub-Saharan Africa. Um, uh, you know, if 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 a community is challenged. It is really challenged because, you know, priorities given to schools in the city and all that, you know, sometimes for political games and those um, in villages and cottages and, you know, these remote areas are left out on almost everything. And, and so um, it happens. You have to bring your own chair to school. Exactly. I mean, I couldn't afford a table and chair, so I used to sit on the floor and write. Um, that is when you... you, you we're so fortunate to have gotten, you know, some money to buy exercise books. Um, I remember we used to share crayons. You, you remember crayons? Well, we yeah, yeah, yeah. And, all that. So, and if, if, you are, if you are, you know, shading with a crayon and you break it, you are in trouble. I mean, the teacher is going to whip you. He's really going to whip you because you are supposed to make sure that you don't break it so that the other person can also use it. You know, so that's, that's, a, that's sort of a picture of um, some of the things, um, I mean, some of the situations around, we couldn't afford books, couldn't afford pens, couldn't afford erasers, you know. So kind of had a bit of a, a difficult childhood. It, it sounds like an environment where um, there were very few opportunities um, and uh, quite lower horizons in terms of, you know, you, you said, and, and you said to me before that, you know, the, the pinnacle essentially of what you, the vast majority of people in your situation, you know, were aspiring to become would be mm. a cocoa farmer. Absolutely. Um, you know, we were, we were in our own kind of world. Um, we didn't know there was any, you know, there was a bigger world out there. 
And so, um, I mean, the, the very people around us that, that inspired us were, you know, sort of peas and farmers. You know, they, they just have these plots of land, they plant cocoa, and when during the harvest time, you know, they get some bit of money and they get radios. You know, when you're able to buy a radio, you are a champion in the community. And very few things, you know. Um, I mean, I mean, TVs were not common those times. You wouldn't have the access to, you know, to 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 TV. And just one or two people had it, and and we had to keep to you know watch them in turn. Sometimes we have to render service to that home before you can be allowed to you know watch their television. So you and need so, to do something for that family to de- definitely. I mean, just to win their favor because now everyone wants to go and watch, and so there is that competition and. I mean, sometimes their rooms were small, or if they would put out their compound, they will, they will kind of control the number of people that come in. So you want to win their favor. So right after school, we go there, try to fetch water for them. We go to the bush, fetch, I mean, I mean um, firewood for them. Or we try as much as possible to do one or two things that will win their favor. And if you're a friend to, I mean, one of the people, I mean, in one of the families that have TV, then hurry, you wore the jackpot. You always want to treat that person as a king or a queen so that you have a favor of the person. He, he, he might probably try to smuggle you into their room so that you could watch yeah, yeah, some of the television. And so, yeah, yeah, just a few opportunities around. We didn't really know anything about universities. We never thought about senior high schools. We never talked about, you know, higher levels of education. Um, we never even thought we could speak English properly because you are in your own kind of world, and everyone is, I mean, everyone finishes their school probably at primary six or stage six, or um, at best. At How old is that? Yeah, um, around that time, I was, I should be around um, seven, eight years. Um, yeah, at this time, seven, eight years. And so you, you, you just look around, and everyone finishes the junior high school, they don't really get good results. And they know that their destiny is the farm. And so they resort to it. They settle down very early on in life. Um, you know, they start giving kids. So at age 17, someone has about three kids. 18, they have kids. Some of them even got more wives. Yeah. So you don't, you don't really, um, you know, have anyone to look up to. There is no, you know, I mean, and you grow with your environment, what you are exposed to. So that is what we mean. Yeah, during those days. Yeah. And it, from what we, we've spoken before and you, you said, it, um, what you told me, it sounds like you had to display um, a very high level of resilience and self-reliance as well from, from a young age. Definitely. I mean, we, we, you, 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 would, you would, in such um, an environment, you would want to um, try as much as possible to, you know, find ways and means to be able to try it. So you kind of uh, sort of become a bit innovative in surviving. So it wasn't, it wasn't a community where you, know, you, you want to live life, but you want to live to survive. Sort of. And so at, at a very tender age, we had to learn how to you know, even support the family financially. And what we used to do personally at that very tender age, around eight years, I used to go to the forest you know, to hunt rats, to, you know, to catch crabs. So we went for crab. Crab hunting—that's what we used to do. We we'll go and, you know, collect mangoes and things, and come and sell them. You know, we used to go and, you know, cut palm palm nuts, 
and come and sell them to people who come from the city and, and all that. And, and I remember clearly that there were times that these, um, they used to have these cinemas, uh, these portable cinemas. They, they would move from one village to another. And when they come to your village, you know, I mean, you, you might not want to miss such an opportunity. But you don't have the money to buy their ticket. So what you have to do is probably they, they might announce it in the village that maybe in a, in a week's time, these we used to call them concerts. These concerts people are coming. They are coming to show movies um, and all that. And, and that is when, you know, almost every day after school, you, you want to go to farm and you want to go to the farm and get something to come and sell and start saving to waste your ticket. You know, so, so every day after school, you'd either be working on the farm or you'd be um, hunting or you know, searching for mangoes or other things in the palm nuts in, in the forest. Definitely. I mean, I mean, actually, that was habitual, right? It was habitual because right after school, um, you come home and you know that right after getting something to eat, you have to walk to the farm. So mm. um, at a very tender age, you know, you, you just you just have to walk to the farm. It's bushy. Um, you were not wearing any shoes or nothing, and you you walk for miles and join your 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 your, your parents on the farm for mm. you to do some work. When you are coming home, you all come home. But actually, when it is getting close to some of these concerts or cinemas, you 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 might want to do a, a lot more. You put in much more effort. So mm. you, you sometimes you even have to skip school. I mean, that was an opportunity no one wanted to miss. So you, you mm. just want to skip school and go and, you know, hunt for rats or crabs and things so that you mm-hmm. can come and sell and get, get some money. And right. these were some of the things we used to do to support the family. I had to learn how to mold I mean, mad bricks at the tender age, around seven years. So you have this mold and you, you, you kind, of, um, kind of dig some mud, pour water on it, mix it, you know, kind of into a mortar, and then you, you, you mold it. And when the sun beats them, people will want to come and buy. And those were for um, um, for those who were well to do in the family. I mean, in the in the village, who could who could afford bricks? Because mm-hmm. in the village, everything was sort of we call it um, mud houses. Mm-hmm. So they were they were not bricks, they were not blocks. But you try to, you know, just just use mud from the from the from from the soil. Yeah, and that's how we used to build our houses. There was nothing in there. We sleep barely on the floor, just like that, you know. Um, and so people who could afford breaks, um, I mean, we are customers, and we used to dig them at a very tender age and just sell it to them. So that's how we used to raise a bit of money to support the family as well, yeah. support ourselves. Yeah. I'm um, just reflecting back on my own childhood, and I'm sure you know, a lot of people listening to this will be doing the same. And um, I suppose the the level of luxury I was very, very fortunate to have, um, it feels extreme in comparison to what you're talking about. And the, not just the facilities that I had of um you know running running water and you know, a soft bed and, and and shoes but then also so many influences that encouraged me to you know 
aspire to be a, a doctor or an engineer or take up a musical instrument. Um, you know, incredibly rich opportunities to try and broaden my horizons. And um, that's something I'm painfully aware wasn't the, the, the case um, where you were growing up. Not at all. I was Not wondering, at you know, at this point, what were your hopes and your dreams? Was it to become a cocoa farmer? And at what point did it change? Because at some point, there was a step change. Um, Definitely, yeah. So, yeah, first, what, um, what were your dreams and aspirations aged eight in, in, in your village? And then what led you to sort of take a very different path from many of your peers? I, I will say that if indeed, I mean, I, ha- I had any aspirations, um, it was probably just to become one thing, and that was to become a peasant farmer, because that's what we knew, and that's what everyone was doing, and we thought that was all there was to life. Um, I remember at a very tender age, I was, I was um, given a machete, and in our, in our language, we call it mofrenciado. Mofrenciado means that um, let the children learn to weed or let the child learn how to weed. And that by implication meant that, you know, I mean, all you have been called to do in life is to become a, a peasant farmer. And so learn how to weed at a tender age. And that's what we used to do. And so even at, at, at those tender ages, even myself and my peers had our own farms. So your, your parents have their big farm, but close to it, we try to also get your own farm. And that was the way that parents used to I mean, train their kids so that when you grow, that, that wouldn't become an issue. Yeah, so um, basically that was it because that's all we knew. We didn't know anything like becoming a doctor, becoming a, a scientist, becoming anything. I mean, I didn't, we didn't even know the importance of, of school. I think we just enjoyed going to school because you see friends. I mean, you play the football and, you know, you, 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 would, you would just have that feel of a school. But we didn't really at those times know what school was all about. Right. And so there wasn't really any clear aspirations rather than what we knew. That was becoming, um, you know, that was becoming, becoming a peaceful farmer. That's what we knew. That was our destiny, sort of. Mm. Um, and so the turning point came in um, when I, I, be, I began to have a bit of exposure to what city life was all about. So mm. I had the opportunity to periodically visit the city um, to spend a few days during my, uh, our long holidays uh, from mm-hmm. school. And so there, were, there, there, there was this extended family member, uh, or let's say extended family members that were in the city. So from time to time, you get the opportunity to come and spend some holidays there. And that was, that was a great opportunity. But you know what? When, when, when we came to the city in those days, that seemed to be a whole different world as well. Mm-hmm. A whole different world altogether. I mean, things were so different. You look at some of these people and you feel they are so refined. You know, compared to them, you are so uncouth, you know. Um, mm. You can't speak good English. You don't dress properly. I mean, mm. and 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 so uh, they were they were they. I mean, 
they were they, they were in certain situations that an ordinary village boy would want to be or would love to to have it and so those were some of the things that sort of uh, started trickling into our, our ears and into our minds that hey there is something much more to right. uh, so the, the city life. felt like quite a it sounds like it felt like a, a bit of a different world. It was, it was more like a heaven. I mean, if you are told you are coming to the city, one, the feel of sitting in a car was, was spectacular. You know, just having even sat in a car was a great privilege. And every village boy or girl would want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even when you come, you come, you go, I mean, you go to the city and you come back, you know, your own peers look at you in some particular way you become sort of a champion for a few days because you have come from the city. Mm-hmm. And I remember when, when we're going back to the village, we want to, you know, um, go to the refuse dump and pick these empty milk cans, um, these empty cans for milk, from um, tomato puree and all that. And we mm-hmm. used to make them into cars in the village. Mm-hmm. And so when you are leaving the village, your friends will want to beg you, tell you that, Hey, somewhere when you are coming, please bring me cans and all that. And when you, and so when you are going, when you are going to the city, everyone wants you to bring something to them. And that was cans and other things or labels that they can, you know, put it, put somewhere and all all those kinds of things. And so every, everyone wanted to have a bit of the, I mean, of the city life. And that I think was some, I mean, I mean, were some of the things that began to. Sort of shift my whole perspective about life. You know, we saw some of those kids quite refined when they are going to school. They have their backpack, they have their nice socks. You know, mm-hmm. um, yep, yeah, their shirts were well ironed, and you look at them and you're like, "This is the life I want." I mean, I want. Compared to yourself, we walk to school sometimes barefooted. I mean, in tattered clothes. I remember there were times you have to go. Uh, to school, probably in your own, you, in just a singlet if you had one, a dirty singlet, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you couldn't afford uniforms and things. And so when you compare yourself with these kids, you, you see that they have, I mean, better lives than, yeah. than you, you do. And so, so you, you want to be with them. So it sounds like you, uh, you know, you had a couple of, uh, a few times you visited the, the city and you yeah. saw, um, the, these kids living a life that you thought uh, seemed like in, you know, incredibly um, or seemed refined, seemed um, much much better. But I, presumably, at this point, still your your destiny uh, destiny is a horrible word to use. Um, you know, the expectations were that you'd be a a cocoa farmer. So then, what what happened? All right. So I think um, having had a, a few opportunities to visit the city. Uh, I had probably, you know, made up my mind that that was the life I wanted. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't want to stay in the village anymore, you know. I feel there's something more to life. Mm-hmm. So I remember there was a time I, I, I had the opportunity to come to the city for, to spend a couple of days. And the very day I was supposed to leave, I said, no, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going back again. I just said, I'm not going back again. Mm-hmm. So they told me to park it. In the morning, they had told me early on in the, I mean, the, the, the previous evening, and I had made a statement, no, I'm not going back. And they just, they just laughed me to scorn because they feel like, you don't know, you don't even know what you are saying. Right. So in the morning, I had not packed. Uh, they told me to pack, and 
mean, it was, I mean, they were becoming furious because, hey, how can this go? I'm not going back again. And so I remember mm-hmm. running away from home when they wanted to catch me and put me in a car. And that was when I, I ran to hide somewhere for, for hours. They were searching for me. Um, they were not finding me. And so at the point, they, 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 they became worried. I think I stayed there till the very evening, probably around 8, 8 p.m. Okay. And no one had heard of me. I had not eaten the whole day. And they were like, what's happening? And so everyone be, I mean, became worried. So now it had, it had moved from whether he should stay or he shouldn't stay to whether he's safe or he's, he, he's not safe. And I remember um, in the evening I walked back home and everyone was happy. They had this mixed feeling. They were happy, but they were also curious as well. You know, where have you been? And so I think from there, they saw the desperation in me. They felt, but why? I, I think he can even lodge somewhere here and just, you know, um, just join some of these government schools around. And mm. If he wants to stay, why don't, you, why don't you allow him to stay? So they talked with my mom, and I, I didn't go back again. And that was a great turning point in my life. And I had to join, um, I think I had to share a room, a very small room with probably nine people. Mm. And so, you know, we, 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 we used to arrange ourselves, like, excuse me to say, in the morgue, you know, mm. we have to sleep at a particular place in a, in a particular position. Because if you turn, you are going into the territory of someone else. Wow. So that that was it. Yeah. And did and you um just going back to that moment where you you went and, and hid, did you before that point realize in your own mind just how strongly you wanted to remain in the city and just how strongly you wanted to, you know, be part of this life and you know the these opportunities of of school because it sounds like you know in in, you mentioned before in school that you'd be caned if you did something wrong you know like this is this is a big disobedience for and i'm guessing you were like nine or or ten years old this is a pretty audacious thing to do did you even think about it being audacious did you even think about how i don't know i don't think i thought about anything in a particularly conscious or rational yeah, way yeah, when i was 10 yeah. years old i just kind of was quite yeah. instinctive but how was it from yeah. how do you recall it how did you feel at the time well now i see from the point of you know desperation being one of the ingredients for great success mm-hmm. sometimes when you are fed up with you know the kind of situation you are in desperation will fuel you to actually push on and take all the risk no matter what so it was quite audacious, but at a point, I think I was fed up with the village life because mm-hmm. I felt there was something to become a better person. And maybe I might not have mentioned this to you before, but there was actually a tragic incident that happened when I was in the village um, mm-hmm. prior to my, my coming to the city. Around the age of uh, maybe six or seven, just around that age, I had a small brother who was just after me. Mm-hmm. And um, one evening he, he started moaning, you know, he was just making some sounds, moaning, and that felt like someone who was in pain. Right. And so my, my, mother took, um, my mother took him to the, to the hospital. And the hospital was in another kind of town or village from ours. So you, you had to walk through the night in the darkness. Uh, for hours before you get to the hospital. So right. um, in the evening when, when we were going to bed, my mom had to just, you know, 
carry him at the back, I mean, at the back and walk for miles um, to the hospital. Mm. And when, when, when he took my brother there to the hospital, what, what happened was they, they are sort of closed down the hospital, sort of closed, as in closed from the day's work. But the doctor lived in the premises. And, and so she, she went in there, knocked at the door, and the doctor came out and said that, look, woman, I'm tired, I'm sleeping, we have closed from the hospital, and so I'm not going to come out, I'm not going to take care of your, of your, of your, of your child. That was, that was around 1 a.m., 1.30 a.m. in the night. Mm-hmm. And so she, she had to just sit somewhere in front of the hospital with her child, you know, in her arms and wait for hours until about 5.30 thereabout, mm-hmm. you know, when the doctor came in. And actually, when the doctor came in, and you know that the, I mean, it was almost um, dawn, and mm-hmm. she could see the child was had already passed on. That was that was um, a very tragic incident. Um, um, your, that your, was a brother of mine. He he said he really, really died loved. by the morning. Yeah, he had actually he had died by the morning, and and so um, you know. Um, I mean, I mean, it was it was really tragic. What happened was that I was in the same class with the the the, the son of that very doctor. Right. Know, I, I I go I, he, and 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 the 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 is that we had the same sending actually. Mm-hmm. So um, it was it was really tragic. You know, things changed drastically from there, and I felt like no, this is not really a place to be, and so. Mm-hmm. You were you are in this mess, uh, you know. You are in a deprived community. Things are not so well. You've lost a brother by just the sheer negligence of, of a doctor, and so I, I felt that there was something more. So all these things added to the desperation. You know, mm-hmm. there's not a place to go back because I mean, there is no security. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot. You know, there, there's nothing firm to hold on to over there because you can. You can easily die if anything happens to you. I mean, mm-hmm. you are not getting a good education. There's no good water. Things were happening all the, all the time. You know, mm. all kinds of things were happening. So, um, having seen a city life, I think I felt that no, this is what I wanted to do. So when I had the opportunity, I felt I had to, you know, I had to, I had to nail it, and that's what I did, just by running away. And and fortunately for me, it worked. Yes. So it was quite audacious, but it worked. I mean, it was audacious in a sense, but now that you put it in, you know, there's, there's context before, but even more context, it, it sounds all, there's a little bit of desperation in there. Would that be fair to say of uh, trying to, you know, run away from a life that you didn't want and uh, running away to stop you getting driven back to, to your village was, What's the kind of way of doing that? Yeah, so, I mean, there wasn't any proper way because even if we talked about, you know, someday coming to the city, it was in a very distant future, sort of, uh, I mean, you, you, there wasn't, I mean, there, there wasn't really any plan as to, oh, I mean, when we leave, maybe, we, let's say, let's live in this village for maybe two years. And my, my, my mom, though, was a peasant farmer, also was into what we call um, government revenue collection. And that was just 
she was in charge of you know some of the markets around the villages around so on market day she would go there and give them what they call tete mm. and give it to the, the the government so i mean the local government so my mom was into that i mean you just go if someone is selling let's say apples you give just a ticket and collect money and come in you know and go to the office uh, at the district office and go and make accounts periodically yeah. So that was where she, um, that was the kind of what she was doing because she wasn't also educated and I mean so much educated and that was what she could do. So you get to the city, you you and you start school there, and in some ways that's that that was a big turning point. But it wasn't. It didn't suddenly mean that the the difficulties of your childhood were over. From what you said before to me, it sounds like it, that wasn't an easy time at all either, even though you were now in the city in, in school. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that um, the challenges were, were at a different stage of my life, but, I mean, but in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. So now I'm in the city and I'm a, I have to you know, battle with all the um, the 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 new experiences and things all around me, um, but we had we still had this underlying issue of financial constraints, mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, sharing a room with this number of people, um, not not you know, I mean, getting money even to buy uniforms was still a problem, but but the joy of schooling in a city was sort of the fuel, and so you wake up every morning knowing that. You know, you are in the city. If for nothing at all, you are in the city. And because of, you know, childhood experiences to meeting people who had always been in the city was a bit of a challenge because you felt looked down upon. Um, mm. they, they, when, 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 when you get to know that you are coming from the village, you know, that, that village boy. So you, you couldn't really be amongst some particular people even though they are your peers. And that that really generated into a very strong inferiority complex I had to overcome on in life. And so we have these financial challenges and things and all that. And unfortunately for me, the house I was living in, though it was in the city, um, it was what we call a compound house. And you know, they wouldn't pay the light bills. And so everything was disconnected. And so you sleep on the floor in the dark, you know, um, you have to share what we call public toilets. Um, mm-hmm. or maybe if, 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 if you could run to the bush somewhere, you know, so though I was back to the city, but mm-hmm. the underlining problem of, you know, financial challenges and you know, not having the proper means to live mm-hmm. were still there. And so at, at that tender age as well, without any, any proper oversight, because your parent, my mo- my mother was still in the village by then, and now I'm in the city. So I had to also find ways and means to survive. And so mm-hmm. I used to sell or call pure water here. I used mm-hmm. to call it pure water and you know um it's that like good branding. <laughs> good marketing ploy. Pure water. <laughs> exactly pure water. We used to call it pure water and, and that was um it wasn't proper sashi. Now we have sashi water in Ghana but in those days um you know you just you just filter the water from there's a tap and you pour them into some plastic bands and you just try to tie them and you put them in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Or go and buy iced water, we used to call iced water or maybe ice cubes 
and you put them in a in a in a bowl in a big bowl mm. and you tie this you know this water and you put them in and so they become chill then you can then lift them put them in a, another container and go by the roadside to sell them that so those were some of the things we were doing and i it was in the city i also learned how to sell kerosene because not everyone in the city at that time where i was could even afford um the electricity so some of them were like my home mm-hmm. were depending on kerosene and so similar homes um we could also create a bit of a market and make a bit of money out of that as well so whilst you're at school you were in after school you were selling water you were selling kerosene to earn a bit of money to exactly. just help sustain yourself yeah we had these shifts in school um so everyone had to go to school for about um six or five hours you go for morning shifts for two weeks and then you go to for afternoon shift for two weeks mm. and so for morning shifts from 7 a.m to 12 noon um that was your if 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 you go from i mean if you go to school at seven you close at 12 and, mm. and when you close then you come home and that was a time for you to go and you know sell some of your water or any other commodity you were selling but if i had an afternoon shift that that meant i had to do it earlier before i mean before 12 in the afternoon and go to school so um though it wasn't really a proper system but it was kind of a good opportunity for me to be able to you know try to raise a bit of money alongside you know schooling in the city yeah, yeah. i was wondering samuel like what you're describing here is it just seems you know you're having to do an extraordinary amount to put yourself through school you seem very um you said how uh, you know excited that you were to to be at school in, in the city but it sounds like an incredibly hard life and were did if you know if my parents told me at the end of my day of school that i had to go and you know work and let alone, you know, sell, um, you know, water um, on the streets. An example might be like work in a charity shop aged 10, you know, for, for the UK. Then I think I probably uh, would have had a temper tantrum and I'd been like, no, you know, I've just been to school. That was hard enough work as it is. And now you're asking me to work. Like, look, let me try and shift something in here. I, I think that, um, you know, from, from human rights perspective, and from child rights perspective, you know, some of those things are seen, particularly by the West and the international community, as, as child abuse. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, in the context of what people go through, sometimes it's not necessarily child abuse. It's not like children are denied of their rights. Sometimes it, it is a way to survive. Mm. Okay? Because, I mean, I mean, the parents can't pay the school fees. What they are doing is not enough. Mm. And so if they have kids, they try to support them. I think there's been a bit of, I mean, some kinds of documentaries. Uh, even in Ghana here, I remember at, um, on the Vota Lake, there is a lake here. Um, and, and, you know, there was this BBC documentary on how children are abused and used and all that. And mm-hmm. In fact, the, the, the Children's and Gender Ministry came out and issued a statement that that is not necessarily so, you know, because look at, look at me in my state, right? In my situation, mm-hmm. my parents couldn't afford anything. 
and I'll close from school sometimes at 12 noon, and I'll come home. What am I coming to do? I didn't have television in the home. You didn't even have lights in the home. And so the best way to do, I mean, the, the best way to go was then to try to do something that, um, you know, that could bring a lot, I mean, some bit of money for me mm-hmm. to be able to use to cater for other things. So in a sense, it wasn't a child abuse. I mean, child abuse, I'm not, I'm not really now the fact that there were risks and other things involved. You know? mm. So sometimes the situation and everything calls for it because there is, there is nowhere to go. You know, there, mm. is, there is nowhere to go. There is nothing really to do. And so that was the only way that you could survive. You could you know, buy even exercise books. These were this some of the I mean, things I was doing to raise money, to buy exercise books, to buy pens and pencils, you know. Because, you know, in the city, you, you could imagine that even in the, in the village, I couldn't, I couldn't afford a table and chair. And now in the city, I was fortunate to have desks and things in the school I was attending. But mm-hmm. other basic things were not there. You should buy your own exercise books. You should do this, you should do that. And so I had to find ways and means to be able to survive. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, could, you, you could have imagined between myself and the poor or the children or the kids that were already in the city, it was a bit of a distance. You know, yeah. you have to be able to, you know, um, try to catch up with them. Just try to catch up with them. You know, you couldn't speak good English. You came from the village and I think the schooling perhaps wasn't as good there. And then you, you're in the city. You yeah. mentioned before that French was, was a subject that you'd never studied before. And yet, <laughs> and, and, it, and yet suddenly you're joining people who'd studied French for a, a couple of years or a number of years. Oh. Okay. All right. So let, let, that's, that's, that's a very interesting story. Now, that was about after three years of being in the city. So mm-hmm. those days, government schools at the basic levels were very much uh, not so strong or compa- compared to private schools um, were kind of deprived as well um, mm-hmm. in terms of logistics, in terms of you know, teacher quality, mm-hmm. in terms of almost everything. And so I, I had endured three years. I was stopping my school. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I became a prefect. But still, these issues of um, you know um, not having money at home and mm-hmm. you know these difficulties hadn't gone away. Nothing had changed pretty much. Although I had settled in and I was enjoying school and all that, I remember there were times I had you know my the back of my short phone and you know I would cover them with my small bag or book you know hold it in a way to cover them whilst I'm walking so that nobody will see. I mean, couldn't, couldn't really afford them, you know, singlet uh, or, you know, boxer shorts or anything. Right. Actually, I mean, I remember the very first time I wore, I wore a singlet for somewhere around um, 16 years thereabout. That was the first time I had, had worn a singlet. And that was given to me by a, a friend that I had met, I mean, um, mm-hmm. for some time. You know, so I had been three years in that government school. Mm-hmm. And then someone saw me one day and said that this guy is a brilliant guy. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's good in class. And so why don't we put him in, in a private school? And a private school, like I've said, had, you know, better, better you know, logistics, better. Uh, everything was, was just better compared to, you know, a government school. Mm. So eventually I ended up, and it was more expensive as well. 
some people might have said you were lucky to have that opportunity. You know, someone comes along and says, oh, this guy, he should go to a private school. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel that you were lucky? I, I, I feel it was, was luck. But on the other hand, that also ended me up in a lot of trouble, actually. And uh-huh. um, I felt, I, at a point, I felt, why did I even get here? You know, that was a very strict environment. You know, mm-hmm. nothing, was, nothing, nothing was left to your own choice. Things were controlled. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a school that you, when, when, you are, when you are paying your fees, you, you actually include the money to buy books and uniform and all other things. Mm-hmm. So, and it was much more expensive. What happened was that just a few months or so that I had enrolled in the school, this issue happened and the person was supposed to take care of me backed out in a way. Right. One, it was so expensive and he couldn't afford it. And he had other responsibilities as well. So okay. it was whether I had to come back or then try to talk to my parents and things and do much more to be able to, you know, to, to thrive in that school. Because you were at the private school that was a bit, that was more expensive and your initial sponsor backed out. That was, that was outrageously expensive. In my terms in those days, outrageously expensive. Right. Now, the, everything, everything was higher. I remember in, in my government school um, where I spent three years, we, we used to read just six subjects. We had these core subjects, math, English math, social science, and then integrated science. And you do, you do what we call RME. So you do one local language I was talking about in the government school. Hmm. But in the, in the private school, you, you, we are, I mean, we used to do 10 subjects. And I was not previewed to about four of them. Mm-hmm. You know? I was not privy to about four of them. In a government school, you are only introduced to those subjects when you go to what we call junior high school. So mm-hmm. having graduated from primary six or stage six, you go to the junior high school. And that's when they start teaching the basics of mm. um, these four subjects. Now, mm. in the private school, the, the, the arrangements were entirely different. Because from them, you start these, the extra four subjects, which make them 10 from mm-hmm. the basic level. So mm-hmm. while I was in class four, reading the six subjects, my colleagues in the private school in class four were reading all the 10 subjects. Mm-hmm. So, so when I joined them, they, were, they had you know, three years experience in the four subjects that I knew nothing about. And they, they were pre-technical skills, pre-vocational skills, um, agricultural science, and what we call them, um, and, and French. When I joined them, you know, I had to catch up on a three years worth of work. Mm. So for instance, when I, when I got there, they were learning, you know, French, they were learning tenses. Yeah. Uh, I remember Le Présents, but I didn't know anything about these things. I didn't even know the alphabet, the ABCD in French. I had no idea about them. What I had to do was to try to copy the notes three years prior. So you were thrown in at the deep end and just said, you know, catch up. <laughs> Exactly. So those were massive challenges because now things had changed from just the, or things had been added up from just the financial challenges to now trying to cope with a system that I had no experience, I had no idea about. Did that make you want to, um, there's like an, there's an interesting study, I think it's in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books where 
someone who's like used to being like top of their class this is like an american system at school and, and then going to university someone's at the top of their class you know all the way through school then goes to a top institution say like uh, you know harvard or something and then they are they, they they were brilliant at school top of their class and then they're kind of like somewhere towards the bottom of the pack they find that very demotivating and like oh maybe i'm not good at physics after all um and don't do so well. And then the other side of it is that someone who doesn't do quite as well at school goes to a slightly, you know, not quite as such a prestigious university and then rises to the top of their class and is like, wow, I'm actually really great at physics. Um, I was wondering, yeah, to, to what extent you found it really difficult to suddenly go from being the top of your school to then struggling just to understand the lesson. <laughs> it happened to me. I mean, it happened to me. I remember, you know, in, in my school, I mean, the government school I used to attend, mm. I mean, every stage had only two classes. But that was different in a private school. In the private school, every stage had not less than four like stages. So, I mean, four classes. So, you can have A, B, C, D, mm-hmm. right? So, if in class, class, let's say class six, you have, you know, A, B, C, D. Some, some, some of the schools had even E and extra, mm. you know? And, and what they used to do was that they used to combine every one of them and just rate you and score you and then give you your positions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you were, we were in the hundreds. And I remember my first position was somewhere 150 something. That was my first position. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was demoralizing. I mean, I, I couldn't just think about it. Having come from a very... I mean, from a school, you, you think you are the boss and now you come here and you are nowhere to be found. But mm. actually, I, I felt it wasn't my fault because, I mean, I didn't know anything. I remember I had to write exams on papers that I had no idea about, you know. And mm. so what I decided to do was then to try to catch up so with French, with pre-technical skills, with pre-vocational skills, with agricultural science. I had to go back and copy all the notes from their class four that is three years prior, and to catch up with them. That's a lot of work. That was a lot of work, actually. That was a lot of work. And so even with what I was doing with French was that I decided to forego the very basics and just try and get where they have gotten to. So what I used to do was to learn French and French from cans, from the cans of maybe milk, from the cans of sachets of, you know, Milo. That's like chocolate drink. Yeah, what, what they used to, what, what, what happens is, you know, because of marketing, they try to write the English, they write the French, maybe they write the German or any other language mm-hmm. where they, they would export their products. So, for instance, what I did was, if, let's say, um, I was writing on my favorite food, okay, in French, so mon plat favori, mm-hmm. and everyone else in the class is writing, oh, um, I like maybe rice or this is my favorite food because it is it is it is delicious mm. this is my favorite food that now maybe you pick a sachet of uh, maybe a hot a hot chocolate and it is written on it maybe easy to digest it's a facile digere and so trying to be a bit different from my peers and give an expression that would impress my French teacher I will write oh maybe jem jem du I like rice rice pasty uh, and the, the, the French teacher was uh. like, come on, I mean, this is not an expression I would expect. So, right. so you're really sucking up knowledge from 
every source exactly. around you. Everywhere. I used to read books wherever I'll get French expressions. I used to make my own notes. Now, this time, I couldn't be afford notebooks and even textbooks. So what I used to do was, you know, try to, um, I mean, just go through old exercise books of people through, you know, the very empty part and try to sew them together. That's how, how come I used to make my own notebooks and all that. So just within just over a year, I was back to my feet. I was now part of the first time in class. And when I was in DHS2, I started talking the, the whole school sort of. So I became one of the best French students. So well, you turned around from being like the person who knew no French to no French. being one of the top students. To be one of the top students. And, 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 and I must say that we're 109 students in my final year. Mm-hmm. You know, because of these challenges, every one of us was almost a border. I was the only person who was a day student. And a day meant that I had to walk from, from, um, for miles from where I was staying to school back and forth every day. Mm-hmm. You know, but everyone else was in the boarding school. And I, and I had these, you know, still financial challenges. It was actually in this school that um, one of the teachers called him the dirtiest boy in the school. I remember seeing after we graduated from Oxford on, on, your, on your Facebook, there's a picture of you. With, with a pair of battered kind of mustard colored trousers. Right. Tell us about those trousers. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so it, was, it was actually in this school, you know, those, those were still very challenging moments, but I remember them so vividly because those were the times that, you know, I was, I was making feats in my academics in that very school. Mm. And so you are doing well in class, but still, the issue of, you know, there's nothing to write home about financially mm. was still there. So I used to be sacked from school for school fees. There were times you're going to write an exam paper and you are not allowed to write it because, um, you know, you have not paid your fees. Sometimes you have to weep. And if sometimes um, um, you, you, you kind of, you are kind of lucky, someone will sympathize with you and tell you, okay, write this paper, but I'm not going to let you write the next one. How, how did that feel that um, you were, you put so much work in to improve your, your you know, understanding and knowledge of all these different subjects to yeah. take exams and then you couldn't yeah. take the exam, not because, um, you know, you, you weren't clever enough or, or, or something, but because there hadn't been the money to pay for the school so you could take the exam. That's, that's a very difficult moment it's 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 less difficult and i i can still you know see tears in my eyes even as i talk mm-hmm. to you right now you know those were those were some of the i mean experiences you can never you know let go um not in a negative sense but things that you can't really forget because they were they were so dramatic they mention your name you pick your bag and everything you leave and then you see question one on the paper question two Oh, these are things I can do it. I mean, within some few minutes, I, I should be done with the work. But you know, you are you are shaking behind the paper because you know that as they started mentioning names, your name is definitely going to be passed. So that was that was habitual, actually. It was habitual because it just couldn't afford it. And 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 so um it was it was a difficult moment. Um it was it was a difficult moment. And suddenly uh, you know, it, it used to happen to a lot of kids, and I think it, it now still does, you know. And 
maybe we might talk about it later on, but these are some of the things that really inspired me to reach out to people like that because I've been there before. Now, yes. um, we were talking about the shorts. So it was actually in this school, um, I was doing well in class. Um, I remember I would go to school and I would not eat anything because I couldn't afford. When it's break time, I would stay. And my friends who had textbooks, um, what I used to do was during break, that was when I would borrow people's textbooks. And I would, I would just go through them and make my own notes because I couldn't afford any textbook. And when we closed from school, because some of them were bodies, mm -hmm. I would just beg them and maybe stay an hour or two in the school just to be able to read their textbooks. Because, I mean, when I left my home, I was a student. I couldn't get access to them and no one would, would want you to take it home. Right. If you are lucky and the person says, okay, today I'm not reading or for the, for the next three days, I'm not reading mathematics. So take this book home. That was a jackpot. You come home and you feed on it like, like, like something. It's really um, just a hearing this, you know, the, it, I basically had to be for a long time dragged, almost kicking and screaming to my textbooks to, you know, <laughs> like to, to, to study. And it was a, you know, going to school was such a burden. Having to do homework was like such a burden. And just thinking at how resistant I was to it. Yeah. It just put what you're, what you're saying just puts that in a, in a totally different light of just squandering the opportunities and just totally unappreciative. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a jackpot. Um, and probably I might have mentioned this to you. But in the house I was living in, because I was a day student, and if you're in a boarding school, you have mm -hmm. access to light. And so you go for what we used to call preps. You, know, you mm -hmm. go for preps, you stay, you steady, and when you close, you come back to your dormitory and come and sleep. Now, yeah. I will close from school and walk back home. When I go back home, there were activities I had to attend to, I had to still do a bit of work. Mm -hmm. But in the evening, I didn't have access to light. So I was given a, a, a watch, a Casio watch by, by a friend. Um, and that, that Casio watch had, you know, this light. If you remember those. Yeah, the little light up screens. You know, exactly. Just, just a little light in there. And I remember that in the night, what I used to do was that. That was, that was my light for learning. So I'll press that part, the light on my watch kind of dim, but I would use I, I used to you know, scroll it over the sentences in the books in my no, I mean in the books and in my notes and that's how come I used to study in the night. So I didn't have access to light, but I would just press it. No, these are things when you tell people they feel no you are exaggerating, but I've learned to be truthful. I mean I wouldn't tell I wouldn't tell this and this is not the first time saying it and I've not changed the story and it, it, it's true. So getting put to it was a problem. I'll come to school, I won't get it. You know, so I used to use the day, you know, to maximize every opportunity I had. Mm. Let's go test my friends, make notes and things. And, you know, if, I mean, and steady, steady. So I, I, will, I will spend two hours after school with books and I'll just go and give it to the owners and then go back home, do other jobs. And in the night, I'll wake up and probably that, that might have, um, you know, added to this habit of, you know, Waking up early because mm -hmm. you know you have to just wake up early and attend to you know, what you have to do and plan for the day and all that. So let yeah. me just link this whole thing to this story of the the trousers, yeah, the trousers. So you know everything was everything was a contradictory because you are doing well in class, but yet on the outside 
you know, you were not so appealing. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I was a day student because of some of these, you know, work and work from mouth to and fro to school. What happened was that I, I was sometimes or probably almost all the time late to school. Because one, you go, to, you go home late, you have to attend to all kinds of work, you wake up in the night, mm-hmm. you know, you have to study. And when you wake up in the morning, you have to attend to chores. So you have to wash the utensils, sweep at home. You know, you are sharing the, the room with a large number of people who are all older. And mm-hmm. in my in my culture, if you are the young young person or you are the youngest, you attend to some of these chores. You know, you sort of give, you know, honor to the elderly. That kind of. So you have to do all these things before you leave to go to school. I I I I couldn't iron my clothes. We had these um manual irons, you know, you just heat charcoals and pour them into it to heat it. We call them box irons and those were the ones we used to iron our clothes. Sometimes you wouldn't have money to buy the charcoal, so you wouldn't iron your clothes. And so you are in school doing well in class, but side appearance, I mean, it was nothing really good to write home about. So it sounds like although you were one of the top students, in some ways, in a very superficial way, you would turn up to class late. Your clothes weren't ironed; they were perhaps dirty. So I, I, I was, I was. I, I, I think that because of this habitual lateness, this teacher might have probably noticed me. Mm-hmm. Who is this guy? He's always coming to school late, and his clothes are tattered. And I remember those shorts. You know, that was the only one I could afford. I told you that in that school, you bought everything in bulk. So, I mean, you bought everything together. So your fees, your boots, your, mm-hmm. um, your uniforms and things were all given to you after you paid every, every money. But, you yeah. know, I, I, couldn't even, I couldn't even afford half of, the, the, half of the school fees yet. So you are not going to get some of those things. So I used to live on just what I had. And that was just mm-hmm. one short. Sometimes mm-hmm. without any boxer shorts. And I remember I got torn. Sometimes the, the desk we used to sit on, you know, it could just pull your, your, because of nails and things, it could just pull your shirt off and, and get them torn. So it happened to me several times. And, you know, that was the only thing I could depend on as well. And there was a way we used to dress. You have to properly tuck in your shirt. You couldn't just leave your shirt on like that. You have to tuck them in. Now, if I had left them on, they would cover my, my back part, you know, my buttocks part, where, you know, I had these holes, my shorts and things going to school. You know, I used mm-hmm. to sew them several times with thread and needle. There were times I would get a tailor to sew them, you know. So they were patched. If you have watched the picture on, on Facebook, they patched. I mean, they were just patched at different, I mean, different, part, different parts. Patched at one side, patched at the other mm-hmm. side. Because, I mean, you just wanted to make sure that there were no holes in your shop. And that was what I used to wear. To, to school, you know, mm. I walked to the marketplaces. I think that I wasn't just even the school, I mean, the, some of the teachers, but even people around, you know, this guy is not, is not so, you know, is not so calmly sort of, you know, in appearance. Because, and that wasn't my fault anyway. I had even some of my own things that used to laugh at me, you know. I used to write on the board because I had very good, a very nice handwriting. When you are writing on the, on the board, your back is facing them. Right, and yeah. your, your your tattered clothes and things are all exposed, you know, mm. to them. And I had some of my mates, especially some of the ladies, uh, interestingly. <laughs> so I was saying that, you know, you had these uh, mockery from 
from mm. some of your mates. Um, and the, the very sad part where those, the, the ladies, you know, and, mm-hmm. you, know, you have a lady working at you and that was, that was a good experience. Uh, um, you know, so I was saying that though there was this glory of, you know, being good in class and yeah, so though he's good in class, but his clothes are tattered or in coat, he's not well-dressed, you know, that yes. kind of thing. So it was, it was in this instance, and I'm, I'm sure that probably it might have gone on for quite some time, when mm. I had gone out to the washroom and I was, I was coming back to, to class uh, to just come and sit and, and study. And mm-hmm. then there's this teacher who just walked to me like that. I had the same surname Asari with him, and mm-hmm. he, he just spoke that to me and started lashing me with the cane at my back, on my hands, you know. This teacher just comes and starts hitting you? Just, just, just like that, you know, just like that. And he was just shouting at me, deep, like, you know, keeping insults on me and just creeping me from all sides. Kneel down, that kind of thing at the top of his voice, and the canes were just flying everywhere. I didn't know what was happening, so I just knelt down like that. And there was another teacher who joined him, and the two of them started insulting me, uh, saying all kinds of words. And you know, um, those were those were very heartbreaking words, you know. And just just at the very end, the teacher said something, and he said, "Do you know you are the dirtiest boy in this whole school?" That was what he said. You know, you are the dirtiest boy in this whole school. And I remember tears just flowing down, down my cheeks like that. I have not done anything. So some of my mates, my classmates came and passed by. And I remember one particular lady who was, who was a good friend. Hmm. She came to me and said, what did you do to them? I said, I have not done anything. And she said, no, don't worry. Let's, let's just go to class. And I went down, sat down. That was, that spoiled my whole day. I couldn't continue. So from, the, from that very time... I don't blame you. I can't imagine it. I mean, you can well imagine it spoiled more than your day. I've had enough, you know, because it's, it's been one challenge over the other. You know, trying to get something out of academics has been one challenge over the other mm. at every stage in the village. You know, when I came to the government school, but I've left some, some of the stories out. Those times, it was difficult having even a shoe to work. Teachers in class four gave me a shoe and that, that shoe was actually for ladies because she, she had only daughters, you know, and I think that she just went through the daughter's shoes and realized that this one could fit this boy in a way. Mm-hmm. And I, I used to wear that and I felt that was a high heel, you know, but I enjoyed it because I had, I'd gotten a new shoe. So it was right. a challenge, you know, the, the, the challenge of having to go to school mm. on an empty stomach, come home, there's no food, there's no light at home. You know, you have to go to the roadside, go and work, get something small to buy exercise books. You know, you don't have money to buy, I mean, textbooks. You used to just feed on the, the textbooks of other people, you know, and all that, you know, having to sit home, not going for a break, you know, there was no money. So, so there was that kind of forcefulness, the willingness to make something happen. When that teacher mentioned the fact that, you know, you, are the, you know, it felt like, am I to, am I to blame? Am I to take the blame? What have I done? You don't even know my story. You don't know where I'm coming from. Yeah. You don't know anything about me. You know, um, that, was, that, was, that was devastating. Um, I, I, I should say that there were other teachers that were more sympathetic. Some mm-hmm. of them would always encourage you to move on in life. But 
this particular teacher. So it just sounds so horrible because my experience of teachers has been people who I I trust uh, that want the best of me. That really, you know, I've been very lucky to go to some good schools where teachers really you care very much. But to to think that a a teacher could be so destructive to someone's development and hopes and dreams is is very difficult to it's very sad very very sad from there on it's really put a lot of fear in me especially when i was late mm. and i was going to school because i knew that when i get to that place i mean i, I will not go scot-free i'll be ripped mm. but i almost all the time used to go to class you know mm. in tears sometimes i'll go to a place just weep a bit, try to dry all my tears before I enter the class. And you know, so uh, it, it became something habitual and that was something I had to do. But the, 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 the sort of the funny and the good part is that none of those things put me down. I never gave up. I remember if, if, you, if you read the story on Facebook, I came home that day and I just removed that, I mean, those, that, that pair of shorts and I said that, I just lifted it to the skies and I said, God, I'm not going to throw this, this, this short away. And you know what? I want to live life so much the fullest. I want to get to the very top. And I will show this short to people and tell them that this is how far we have come. And so if we have been able to do it, you can also do it. So for almost 10 years, um, I've kept the short, the short. I mean, is it 10 years? Probably getting to 12 years now because this happened to me somewhere 2007. That was when this incident happened. And so 2007 and 2019, that was like, like, like just 12 years. So for, for those number of years, I kept the shorts and I went everywhere with it. Where did that come from, Samuel, do you think? You're, there, there's so much and uh, many, many different points in, in your journey where the the option to give up or not even give up, but just say that the circumstances were too much. Um, You know, the, so so many people were saying it's, it's it's not possible or you're really out of place or something. Um, What made you say, you know, drive you to the reverse and say, actually, I'm going to rise higher. Right. So I, 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 I will attribute it to two major things. I will attribute it to two major things. The first thing was that, you know, I was, though it was a poor home, my, my mom was a staunch Christian. And mm-hmm. so um, I was born into a Christian family. I was introduced to Christianity and I was introduced to the Bible. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of, you know, things that I picked from the Bible, something like not stealing, not lying. Mm-hmm. You know, in the midst of all these, I never, I never stole anything. I could get the chance to do that, but I knew that that did not please God. Despite the temptations must have been extraordinary if, if you were desperate for a bit of money. I mean, those were opportunities to develop yourself into a skillful team, you know, and a skillful mm-hmm. liar. I mean, you could do it. I mean, as a kid, you could do it. You could find, I mean, I had, had um, you know, um, sort of people in similar situations that went the other side. They were trying to depend on lies and all that. So mm-hmm. I, I, I felt that there was something more. And if you found nothing at all, I, I was in the non-entity, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think I looked around and I realized that, look, 
these potentials of becoming somebody in life I have, compared to all other people around me, I have these potentials. I'm not going to let this thing you know, block me from really becoming what I wanted to become. And on another side, I, I, I hated to see people suffer. I hated to see people go through what they went through, especially because of their background or because mm-hmm. of you know, some lack of opportunities. Because I realized that people were brilliant in class. People could do almost anything at all, but just because of, you know, um, you know, because of where they are coming from and because of, you know, uh, things that wasn't really their fault, they, they just get stuck somewhere and they are, they are not able to amount to it. Just only yesterday, I was talking to someone about two mates of mine who were very brilliant in class. Mm-hmm. And because of, because of, you know, lack of, you know, financial support, though they had very good grades after senior high school, they couldn't, you know, push on to the university. And mm-hmm. they, are, they are struggling now. So I was telling the person, I feel that, no, these people cannot stay home with these grades. They have to move on. So one, you know, the sort of the God factor, that sense of, you know, God loves you no matter what. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my, my mother encouraging me in the Lord and telling me about God. I mean, you wouldn't sleep without reading your scriptural verse. So even when I left, I left her in the village and I was in the city, that life still continued. So after I had this work and all those challenges, I'll still come back, you know, and before I sleep, I'll, I'll just pray, read my, my Bible or, you know, I mean, just recite some, 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 some scriptures that I knew mm-hmm. before I'll go to bed. So I, I, I was always working in those days, I mean, with that sense of it is going to be well. And what was the second factor? And the second factor was, you know, this, um, probably this strong sense of determination and that unbroken resolve to become something in life. I'm sure that, um, you know, it resulted from all this desperation. I just felt there was something more to life. Uh-huh. I just feel that listen, there was something more to life than just what was around, mm. you know, because I would look at friends and all. And, and there was also one thing. I hated to see tears in the eyes of my mom because she put in much more I mean, effort into whoever we have become today. She would, she would go the extent, to the very extent, to make sure you know, her children were fine. Though her best, were, I mean, her best wasn't enough. But we, we so much appreciated her effort. That must have been tough for your mum to work incredibly hard and, in, in, in your words, for that not to be enough for all of her children. It was. It was. I remember there were days that, you know, the all we had was just five mangoes, or maybe six of them I was supposed to share, you know, with. So she would call all of us, we'd sit around the bowl with our mangoes washed, and she would encourage us and tell us, you know, how of a blessing we are to even be alive. And the fact that some people haven't gotten mangoes to eat, so we should wow. be able to appreciate it. And she wash them and give everyone one, 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 or oh, pray and we'll go and sleep. So, and there were times we used to go and borrow sugar, you know, borrow salt, borrow rice, and people would come hunting for my mom, you know, just coming for their monies and all that. But in the midst of all, she kept pushing us on. She kept encouraging us. She wow. kept, you know, I, I must, I must say this. So we were, we we're six. I mean, we we're just six, right? Um, mm. I had six, six, you know, we we're six. But the list of us now has a university 
you know, it's, it's now in the university. The, la the very last one is now in the university. And that was the determination of my mom. You know, she, she told us, no, you, you can't stop here. And she used to tell us how she wanted to study, but she couldn't get the opportunity. So she married at a very tender age, maybe yeah. around 18. She was given into marriage. Um, in court, against her will. And she used to tell us how much she really wanted to study, but she couldn't get the opportunity. Your mum sounds like an absolutely formidable lady. She is. She's a very firm and strong lady, extremely strong. You know, she's gone through all kinds of promise, from the death of my brother to all mm. kinds of things, you know, do this, insults and all that, you know, all kinds of things happen, particularly in the village. I mean, mm. I can't, I mean, if, if I'm to give details, but, you know, some, someone might ask, how come you got into all, kind, all those kinds of financial constraints and all that? But there, there, there were multiplicity of factors coming from there, all, all sort of angles. I remember mm -hmm. we had our whole house in the, in the village bent down to ashes, you know? And I told you my mom had to, my mom was, you know, collecting this revenue for the local government. And she had all her documents bent down, plus the money oh she had gone for and everything. And she couldn't, and she couldn't account. So mm. for a very long time, they had to place a ban on the very small salary they were giving her. And so we, we virtually had nothing. And we used to share just, you know, just, you know, we used to share maybe five of us who eat from just one, one bowl, you know, just some small food. Mm. My mom would, there is a local food called Banku. Kind of, we roll it into balls. It's a carbohydrate food, starchy food. You roll it into a bowl like that. Mm -hmm. My mom would just divide it like that and just put small, small, small into other bowls and pour them small soup on them. And that's what you have for the whole day, right? It was, it was really a difficult situation, plus other things, you know. And daddy wasn't always home to, like I told you the last time. And mm -hmm. so it was like just a single parent trying to, you know. So like that, I mean, I was a shepherd boy, even at that, that very tender age. I used to, mm -hmm. you know, drive sheep and things to the field. And those were things we were doing to, you know, support the home, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So it, it was, it was, my mom was a very strong woman. And, yeah. and, and I, did, I, I said to myself at that tender age that, you know what, I think she deserved better. So you... <laughs> To fast forward a bit, you went through a very challenging childhood yeah. through a school career that would, I think, make a, a lot of people, and certainly I'm talking about myself here, kind of ashamed of the relationship I had with school in terms of how reluctant I was to go and to make the most of those opportunities. Mm. Let's move forward a bit to your time at Oxford which to from an outside perspective you know that can seem like you've you've made it you finally made it you're in you know a world-class university institution yeah. you did your undergraduate um in ghana but were there i hope there, there are a lot of very positive things about being being at oxford uh not least the classmates of course because you know i was one of them um <laughs> no i joke um yeah. but what were the challenges of, of being at Oxford, of coming to the UK. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you said, I mean, that is probably everyone's dream. I always wanted to be the best and to be among the best. So I remember applying to only Oxford and no other school. <laughs> I said to myself, you know, I am going to, I mean, I'm going to Oxford. Uh, can you just describe how you 
felt when you got your letter from Oxford saying you'd been accepted? I, I don't know. It was early on in January in 2018. Mm. I think I was, um, I was in a conference. I remember I was in a conference. Um, it, there was a break. So when there was a break, I, I just came out. Mm-hmm. And just when I, I put, I, mean, I, I switched on my data, I saw this, you know, this email. So I was like, wow. So I went on, I just, just went on and, and I realized I was, it was admission. And it was like, congratulations. When I saw congratulations, I don't think <laughs> I read anything again. I was so happy. I mean, I went back in there to sit in the setting. Uh, and, and I couldn't concentrate. I just wanted to shout. I just wanted to come out. And I remember right after the conference, I said, I said nothing to anyone. I just ran straight away, picked the car, came home. It was just, it was just jubilation. Samuel, thank you so much for sharing the journey that you went through, through your childhood, uh, from the village that you grew up in to the challenges that you faced at school in the city which you overcame and surpassed and now you have graduated from Oxford University one of the world's most prestigious universities. I feel very fortunate and deeply appreciative of you sharing your story with me and and our listeners. I would love to talk more about your arrival in the UK, your time at Oxford. I think that's a conversation for another time because there's going to be so much to go into. But before we finish today, I was wondering whether we could talk a little bit about you, you've told me before some really, it would, to me, it was very some very striking thoughts about your take on, I guess, you know, people coming from from different backgrounds, of different skin colors, of different nationalities, maybe particularly in the context of George Floyd. And there's an increasing um, acknowledgement and desire to. There's Black Lives Matter, and I, I personally think it's not it's not just black lives it's 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 every every life matters equally and i think in the uk and in america black lives and um lives from many different minorities don't appear uh to be valued in the same way that the the, the majority white lives are valued i was just wondering what your your thoughts on this were um yeah look um i think this uh I, this this whole issue of racism is it's it's outrageous actually it's preposterous when you want to think about it you know and um the 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 certain is that it happens to almost every black person it happens to almost every black person i I was shocked to know that even you know people who are british they had been born british but because of their skin color they were they were you know they faced this racism and all that um, it's just, it, it is a difficult thing, you know. It's, I, I've always tried to think about it this way, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in the UK, I, I, I you know, I, I realized that the the, um, the British love pets and how they used to take care about their 
their pets, particularly their, their dogs, and they are so careful to take them to the vet and all that. But look, you, you, look, you look at dogs and you realize that there are different kinds of dogs. You look at dogs, you have Caucasian, you have um, Dalmatians, you have all kinds of breeds, different types. And each and every one of them have their own Yep, you have, each, each one has its own peculiarities, uniqueness, something that distinguishes mm-hmm. it from all others. And people love them for their uniqueness, right? Yes. But, you know, it, and, and this, is, this is the same, you know, with all other animals with trees, you will find only one fish. Yeah. Different types of fish. Different, the way they behave are different. So why, why don't people accept the fact that all human beings cannot be the same? All human beings cannot have the same color. All human beings cannot have the same cultures or culture. All human beings cannot, we just cannot be the same. Our accent cannot, cannot be the same. For instance, though I am speaking English, but Luke's accent is British. Mm. Mine is an African Ghanaian accent. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 we have English as our formal language. When you, when you hear other people from, from, from Kenya, from, you know, from Uganda speak, their accent, even their English accent, though we are all in Africa, you know, their accent is entirely different from ours. You know, the fact is that we, we, we can't all be the same. And the second point is that these are things that no one has control over. You know, for instance, I, I, I never chose to be black. Okay, I never chose to have a big head. I never chose to be born to my family. Probably if I was given the chance to be born to my family, um, or to choose the family I would be born into, maybe uh, I would have maybe preferred a better one. But, mm. and so these are things you have no control over. So why should someone be treated on the basis of their skin color? Why should someone be, be judged on the basis of their skin color? So it, it's a difficult thing and it happens to every one of us. Interestingly, it happens to every one of us. You know, it, it, when I was in the UK, it happened to me so many times. I mean, so many times. And maybe I, I might have mentioned this to you before, even in Oxford. You know, it happened to me. Um, what sort of things would happen? Yeah, I, I saw a few articles about people trying to raise their concerns. I, uh, I saw um, this black guy who told me that he just loves to wear the Oxford, you know, kind of pullover mm-hmm. to be able to identify himself with the people. So that when he walked to the store, they will know that he's also in Oxford University. He's not just an ordinary person. So, you see, it puts us in a place where, you know, you, you would want to fight for the basic right of being human. Mm. Not all other things, but the sense of being human, to be accepted that you're a human being, mm. you even have to fight for it. And that is a very difficult situation to be in. You know, not even to fight for your rights or your rights of speech or your right of that, but that state of being human, blacks have to fight for it. And that is a difficult thing. Yeah. In Oxford, I remember I went for um, this meeting and we were supposed to have a presentation and then and asked, you know, your customers, you love to have coffees and things and all that. Mm-hmm. So we're in the queue, just going for coffee. And there was, there was this white American guy just, just standing in front of me. And I, I, I saw he wasn't comfortable knowing that the one who is right behind him is a black. He was so uncomfortable. Everything showed he was not comfortable. 
something happened. He was holding his cup. So he swung the cup that way, you know, towards his back. And it hit my hand. So he was just turning away with his cup in, in hand. and Exactly. And it just hit my hand. And when he hit my hand, I was just looking at him. What he did was that he went out of the queue, went and put the cup on a table and picked a different cup. Oh and my then God. He, 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 he came and joined the queue and he, this time he didn't come to my place. He actually went about it. I mean, he just stood by a friend about two, about just two, two, two persons away from that's him. Horrible. And that's horrible. And it, it's, it's a difficult thing because when it happens to you, the reality hits you. And so you become very, I mean, a bit aggressive and a bit defensive. So you are thinking, what will the next person do to you? Wow. You feel like, oh, really? So this thing is around. Especially when you are in an atmosphere that you feel that you are at home, everyone has accepted you and it happens to you. So it creates that sense of suspicion. What do the next person do to you? So if you are not even careful, you know, the next person who is not a racist and loves to, you know, just identify himself or herself, you may, you may want to put certain defenses to make sure that, you know, the person doesn't take you into that place. So, so you're kind of worried, there might be some second guessing, you end up sort of second guessing, is everyone going to yeah, who's going to be a racist and who isn't who is going to be racist towards you so you, you you try to prepare yourself for it and fight it and you need to fight it before you can even get to that place of trying to start with everyone else mm. i mean i i met I, I, I was i was somewhere in the uk and this romanian guy walked up to me and just said that you know why why are blacks so ugly that was just the statement why are blacks so ugly? And, and, and you know, when they tell you that, 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 that when, when someone makes that statement, he's actually making reference to chimps, you know, to chimpanzees and apes, you know? And, and so it sends you back, you know, you are a black ape, you know, you are an ape. They feel that we live on trees here. They feel that, you know, you are not human beings, you, know, you are subhuman, you know, you don't belong to us, you know? So there is this white supremacy, you know, uh, we are the real human beings. I saw you, you are not part of humans. And, and it's, it's sad that in the 21st century. It's just incredibly sad. <laughs> incredibly, incredibly sad and destructive. Yeah. One man just walked up to this Nigerian guy and asked him, why are you black? I think he has control over being black. You know? But look, look, let's look at it this way. So you see, George Floyd was treated that way, I think, because he was black. If he had been a white man, this guy wouldn't have you know, knelt on his neck like that. And just come to think of, if, I mean, you are a policeman, right? And you are trained about all these things. You are trained for emergencies. If you are, if you are pressing the windpipe of someone and the person is suffocating, definitely you will know. You will know because the person will not just, just lie down like that. Definitely, you know, you struggle with the leg all over. And this guy is shouting, I can't breathe. And he stands on his neck for more than eight, hours, I mean, eight minutes. And this guy is gone. Mm. I mean, it wouldn't have happened to a, a white person. So it, it's a difficult situation. It, it's a difficult, it, look, when you, when you come to, maybe try to come to Africa one of these days, and you, you realize how great these people yes. are. Yes, so, so true. I've been to Nigeria and I have oh, never felt a place so 
vibrant, alive, uh, and welcoming. Trust me, uh, you know, and it, it, it's not. We don't only do it to blacks, right? When we, we are, we are, we are, we are straight to the hospitable to accept the way they are. There is a local adage that when you entertain strangers, you might entertain angels. You know, so you you may not know who you are entertaining. We have stories that tell us about people who entertain strangers and how it has worked out for them so nicely and even lifted up from their predicaments and all that. You know, we believe in the principle of sowing and reaping. That when I sow hatred, I'll reap hatred. When I sow love, I'll reap love. And so we are communal in the setting that I grew up in, right? If you, you are a child and you do wrong stuff somewhere, somebody's parents will punish you and bring you to your father. Um, it, it must have been very difficult coming to the UK if you've come from a place where, you, where guests are, give us a huge amount of respect to. And you come to the UK and you're treated, well, I think some people hopefully would treat you fine, but it's, I don't think you would have received the same kind of welcome though. I mean, you, the point is, you know, I, I don't really have words to explain the experience. It's a difficult situation, you know? So in a sense, truly, a lot of blacks can breathe, mm. right? A lot of blacks can breathe. You sit in the bars and nobody wants to sit close to you. If you like, you know, so there's this, this psychological makeup. If you are not careful, it will generate in that sense of I'm not even worthy. And a lot of blacks know it. Trust me, if you meet three, two blacks talking, right, especially in a, in a uh, you know, in a, in a white majority area, most of the other discussions revolve around how they will try it. My senior brother works with Jaguar Land Rover. And he tells me some of these things. Sometimes he has to report. This is a guy who is a data analyst, right? He's a data guru. He's currently working as a senior capacity manager for Jaguar over in the UK. But he still faces it. You know, he served in the UK Army. Mm. You know, that's my blood brother, my, my the same mother, same father. He served in the UK Army and he built himself up a career. He has a nice family. But even as an he still faces some of these things. You know, and sometimes he, he tells he tells me he says that someone will just walk up to him, especially when he has gotten a promotion. He says, you know what? When blacks get promotion, I hate it. Then you ask them, "Don't I deserve it?" He says, "Yes, you deserve it. I know you're a very hardworking guy. You deserve every bit of it, but I hate it when blacks." So some of them are blatant, mm. you know. In, and in Britain, most of them wouldn't even be that blatant. That's uh, really saddening. They are angry, you know, they are angry. And sometimes they feel that it is because of this whole slip trade and things that has ended up in them. So they, they, are, they, they want to try to have an identification in, in, in society. So they form gangs. You know, most of these things, trust me, most of these gangs and things and gang culture and all that is, is to really fill a void in your heart. If blacks were accepted, I'm sure they... They, they would really, really have an interest. Mm. But the bottom line is, at least for human dignity's sake, let's be accepted and let's there be peace. I mean, let's there be peace. Why don't, you know, Martin Luther said that he foresees a day where, you know, his, his, his little daughters will, will not be judged by the colors of their, by, by the content of their character. Yes. 
things have really gone further and the civil rights movement has achieved a lot, but I, I can tell you emphatically that I don't think that statement has much in here. Up to now, blacks are still judged not on the content um, of their character, but by the colors of their skin. Look, look around you, look at sportsmen, look at these great athletes. I mean, we have great blacks who are doing well in almost every, every aspect. Of, of society in the West, you know, we have these great physicians, we have these great psychologists. I mean, if, 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 a, if a black can be pilot and a white can be pilot, what's the difference? That's the situation we find ourselves in, right? I mean, if, if leaders are corrupt, it is not the fault of a little girl, three year old who's been born and doesn't have food to eat. You get what I'm trying to say. People go trying to fight some of these basic things. And that's the reason why I told you I don't want to stay in the West. I feel I belong here. I just want to identify myself with my people. I want to try and do something meaningful and tell them, hey, you can't do it. If I had all these challenges, you know, yeah. opposing me, I mean, I had thousand and one reasons to give up. I had thousand and one reasons. And I must confess there were times I was discouraged. I wanted to give it up all. Mm -hmm. But I would always say to myself, is it worth it? You know, is it worth yeah. it? Sometimes you are in the middle of the road, probably going back would take as much as going forward to your destination. So why don't you move on and, 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 and go on? So that is basically, so you come to Africa, sometimes you come and you won't weep. When BBC comes to Africa, they are looking at a child with around the, 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 the mouth and the nose, and this flies all over, you know, a, a malnourished child. And that's, those are the pictures they want to take and put it on a, on a footage for everyone to see that that's a picture of Africa, which is really, I mean, a great lie because we have also made a bit of advancement as well. We cannot compare ourselves to the West, but we love what we have and we believe we'll get there. My, one of my greatest desires is to be able to inspire the up and coming generation. And help people who were in your situation? Absolutely. That's what I want to do. And not only here, but across Africa. That's my vision. But I saw this news item, this when this whole coronavirus thing started, and I was so sad. And some statements that came from, I mean, Belinda Gates, you know, saying that, you know, people will be dying in, in the streets of Africa and all that and all that. I, I, I was, you know, some of these things get you, and people, people were really outraged. I saw people saying all kinds of things against them because, you know, it, it still feels that has any issue and they are damned on Africa. You know, that's a painful thing to see. It's still painful having gone to Oxford to still see a kid now who is, who is in tattered clothes, look, and is struggling to have, have a place in society and even in his own classroom. And you're thinking, it is not because he doesn't have the potentials and the abilities. He has. He can become whatever he wants. He can become a pilot by just the environment. So I feel that if there is anything at all, we, we should be able to create, first of all, you know, inspire people onto knowledge. So people have to know the opportunities around them. It was when I was in the UK that I realized that, you know, people in school have a lot of opportunities. Yes. You know, you could, you could, you could build yourself so well and have great opportunities. A lot of blacks would, would come probably to the West and wouldn't want to come back. But some of us, we want to come back. We want to come back. Look, this is where we belong. This is where I belong. I don't know the amount of money that that would really, you know, 
pulled me from this place and get me stationed somewhere in the West. And I, I have that call. I, I have that call. I need to get to my people. Yes. Need to encourage people right from the very you know, beginning. Currently, as I speak to you, I am, I am having some extra classes for a guy that I came across. And he's given up because he feels it's too much difficult to study. Samuel, I, I don't think he's the first, but he is one of many people that you have impacted. And I'm excited, really excited to see where the other people that you impact in, in the coming months and years. Um, I feel that we, <laughs> we could talk for a long time more, but alas, we've got to wrap things up. And... I've got some three questions that I really want to ask each person who now comes on the podcast as a, as a way of sort of finishing it, but also because I want to learn from each guest. And first question is, where is your favorite place? I, I love traveling the world. I've been incredibly fortunate to be able to do that. Where would you think is a, where's a very special place? <laughs> okay. Uh... So I, I have been to, um, to Turkey, I've been to Spain, as well, well for their boat, their boat trip, and I've been to the UK. Um, but I, honestly, my favorite places, they are not one, but they are one. I think my favorite place or places would be the streets of Africa. It is so, I mean, I'm saying streets because they are identical. That is when you see strength, you see perseverance, mm-hmm. you see people rise, out of nowhere and get somewhere. Mm. Look, the truth is that, you know, most of the things a lot of Africans, you know, ha- have to overcome even before you get to a place that they, like the university. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of white folks and their children cannot stand even 5% of it. I know we have our own peculiar challenges, but mm. as in the issues of life, the things you have to overcome, the kinds of challenges you have to jump over. The hurdles you've had to overcome to get to Oxford? How do you have to overcome to really get, you know, like in my case? And I don't even say my case because probably some people are there in worse conditions. And so when you go through the street, you see young guys who are trying to make ends meet. Mm. Some of them don't even know their parents. Some of them, you know, are at a tender age, are the breadwinners of their mm. home. You know, mm. they didn't want to be. It's not what they ever wished for. Mm. They have all these issues, they are still smiling. And that is strength. That is strength. They have all these predicaments. Uh, and I think that's something that speaks to, I think, the philosophy that you know, life is what you make of it and what you, you, you choose to see. Exactly. Um, my, my second question, Samuel, is what is your favorite piece of music? I'm always looking to try and expand my music Collection. I'm very lazy. I, I, know, I sort of just listen to the same music each time. So what, what's your favorite piece of music? Okay, so I love, I love um, Christian music mm-hmm. um, and more of motivating, you know, songs. Mm-hmm. Songs that lift your spirit and tell you can't do it. Yeah. So I think there is a song by Travis Green. I don't know if you know him. Um, it's Made Away. Made, Made Away. Away. And final question samuel what what is your favorite book left that that impact or has shaped the way you think or is where you you know in times that you need to escape absolutely i I think it's i mean i I don't think but it's just the bible 
that's my favorite book actually yeah it's the bible um i think a lot of inspiration from it i read great stories about people who rose from nothing and became some some somebody in life samuel thank you so so much for sharing with us i feel what was really only the the tip of the iceberg of your story but that in itself certainly makes me reconsider particularly my childhood my relationship to education and and school and then also yeah and there's so so many things that i took for granted and i think if appreciating and understanding the challenges that others have been through around us i think hopefully can make us that little bit more understanding and and supportive and accepting of others so thank you thank you luke thank you so much for having me on facing up